My talk today is going to be on uh, textual criticism. And let me, at the beginning, just say I am no expert. I am definitely not a text critic. Um, I have taken the languages, the biblical languages, and there was a, a, a stage when my, my Greek wasn't too bad, but since I'm running after the three kids now, I, I haven't kept it up the way I should. But the reason why I did this talk, though, was when I first discovered the science of textual criticism, how it works, and what it really says about our scriptures, I thought to myself, she, I wish I knew this before. It really changed the way I view the scriptures as, as we have them today. And it's given me just such a regard for the work that goes into it. So if nothing else, if I can show you a little bit of that today and just give you confidence in the whole process behind the scriptures as we have them today. So if we can go away with knowing roughly what textual criticism is and why it's important today, then I would have achieved my purpose. Now, I know that some of it will seem a little technical. Um, I'll try to keep that to a minimum. We use that just to show the broader picture. So if it feels like you're going under, don't worry, we're, we're moving to a point somewhere and you don't have to do, remember the technicalities. I'll say... Um, Early on, I'm going to give the PowerPoint and my notes here to, to Alison, to the church, so you don't need to scribble everything down. Um, you're welcome to just get that from her. She can email it to you, and whatever we don't get through in the 45 minutes, you're welcome to read over. And I also make a couple of recommendations of books if you want to do some further study by yourself. Okay, so I want to start off by just sort of showing you the problem. Why is textual criticism important? Why, as Christians, should we even concern ourselves with it? So I want to tell you about a gentleman called um, Bart Ehrman. He is currently the distinguished, uh, the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina on Chapel Hill, just here around the corner. Um, he's a leading New Testament scholar. He's written and edited over 25 books, three college textbooks, He's achieved acclaim on a popular level. I think he's written four New York Times bestsellers. And his work focuses on textual criticism, the stuff we're going to be talking about today, um, of the New Testament, the historical Jesus, and the evolution of early Christianity. So how did Christianity become the, the faith or the system that it is today? So in his book, um, Misquoting Jesus, he says this. Not only, talking about the Bible, he says not only do we not have the originals? We don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. What we have are copies made later, much later. In most instances, they are copies made many centuries later. And these copies all differ from one another in many thousands of places. As we will see later in this book, these copies differ from one another in so many places that we don't even know how many differences there are. Possibly it's easiest to put it in comparative terms. There are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Okay, now to sort of press my point further, I'd like you to open your Bible, if you have one here, um, at Luke chapter 22. And we'll read verse 41 to 45 together. If you. Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 41 to 45. 
I have it on the screen, but I prefer it if you'd look it up in whatever version of whatever translation of the Bible you have. Um, and you'll see why in, in just a second. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Luke 22, 41 to 45. Okay. Right. So it says something like this. It says, And he withdrew from them about the stone's throat, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. Right. Please raise your hand if there is a footnote concerning verse 43 and verse 45 in your Bible. Does it have a little A or a B or a thing there? And at the bottom, there's a little explanation. It might read something like, some early manuscripts do not have verses 43 and 44. Do you see it? Does your Bible have it? Anybody whose Bible does not have it? Okay, everybody has that footnote. You don't? Okay. This is also... <laughs> right. Okay, so, now, keeping in mind what Bart Ehrman said, keeping in mind the passage we just read, think about the following statement. The Bible is the inerrant, unchanging word of God. Now ask yourself, should I believe this? In light of what Ehrman says, there are many, many copies and they're all different from each other. And that footnote, the very footnote in your Bible says, there are some manuscripts in which those verses don't appear. Okay? And that footnote's one of just very many. Have you ever noticed those footnotes? Have you ever thought about them? What they might mean? Why are they even there? Should you worry about them? Should they make you nervous? Okay. Are Bart Ehrman's assertions correct? And if so, what does it mean for the integrity of our scriptures? Can we trust them? Can I base my life and my faith upon these words? If there are footnotes like these. Okay. Now, if these things make you a little bit uncomfortable, then hopefully today will be will be able to sort that out. If you already think, oh, I know what's coming, then you're welcome to go to sleep. If, you, if footnotes and textual criticism don't bother you, then you can go and drink some coffee and I won't take any offense. But if you, right now, you're just thinking, hmm, what do I make of that? Then um, hopefully I'll be able to show you that they are not cause for concern. They are actually cause for great comfort and a lot of trust. So, um, We'll focus on textual criticism this morning. It's just going to be a brief introduction. Um, but I think it is something that the church in the broad should know about. Because it, it ought to give us great confidence in our scriptures. So let's start with the definition. What do I mean um, when I say textual criticism? What does that mean? It's a fancy name for the science and art that seeks to determine the most reliable wording of a text. So we don't only do textual criticism on the Bible, we do it on all ancient documents. So you'll have textual criticism on the Constitution of the US, on Plato's writings, on what were we talking about the other day, the Mayflower Compact signed by the pilgrims way back when. 
Um, any ancient document that we are trying to determine the original wording or the most reliable wording of a text, we do textual criticism on it. That's the process. Um, it's a science because it's governed by certain rules. There's a way that you do it. But it's also an art because it is literature. Um, it's, the rules can't always be applied rigidly. There, there's room for some interpretation and for knowing how to apply it in every situation. Another definition would be the study of any written composition of which the original is survived by copies that contains variants in the text. What does that mean? It means you don't have the original writing anymore. The original book or the original piece of paper is gone. What we do have are copies made of that thing over time, read by people. We, we tend to struggle with that idea because we live post the printing press. Uh, there was, of course, the time before when the only way you could copy one thing to another was to write it by hand. Um, and this is what we're talking about when we refer to these manuscripts, handwritten documents made from an original. So how do we determine what the original was if all we have are manuscripts that were copied over time? Okay? And this is the science, determining from what we have today what was written in the original. That's called textual criticism. Okay, so a simple definition, biblical textual criticism is the study of the original wording of the Bible, and it attempts to discover as nearly as possible what is the original text of scripture as written by the original authors. Okay, so, a couple of things. Um, don't confuse it with higher criticism. Maybe you've heard the word higher criticism. These were the guys in the sort of 1940s, late 1940s, early 1950s, who were asking questions about whether the Pentateuch was ever written by Moses, or was it just a bunch of authors, authors that sort of compiled the Old Testament. Questions about who wrote it, when it was written, who was it written to, that's what we call higher criticism. Textual criticism is about which words, which actual words were in the originals when they were first written down. That's the difference. Okay, now textual criticism is important because it precedes any study of scripture. How are you going to study scripture if you don't know what's supposed to be in there? The actual words. Okay? So before we can say, here is the Bible that we need to study, we need to know what should be in it. As far as, what did the Apostle Paul write in that? What did his original epistle say? Okay? Um, one, one author put it this way, interpretation, teaching, and preaching cannot be done until higher textual criticism has done its work. So when your pastor went to seminary, he took Greek and Hebrew, he read, reads the New Testament in Greek, but that Greek New Testament that he used to read was compiled by people from the, origin, from the manuscripts. They decided which Greek words would go into the Greek New Testament that he was reading. Okay? And the question is, how did they do that? Okay, how can he trust that Greek New Testament that they put together? So my argument would be that every person who preaches from Scripture and every Christian who is serious about studying Scripture should understand the process of textual criticism. How did we come to the Bible as we have it? I think you are somewhat irresponsible in trusting it if you don't. And I can see how somebody who has doubts about the Bible can say, you don't even know where this comes from. You don't know the process that's going. Why is there this footnote? We have to be able to say. And the awesome thing is, it's a great process. 
it actually encourages you when you, and that's part of the reason why I put this talk together, because when I learned about it the first time, I was like, this is awesome. I, I wish I knew this before. It, it changes the way I look about at, at scripture. So, Bart Ehrman is correct when he says we do not have the original documents, or the fancy word for it is the autographs. We don't have the letters to Timothy that Paul wrote in his own hand. We don't have the original copy of the Gospel of Matthew that Matthew wrote. We don't have Luke and Acts written by Luke, the original documents. Okay, there are, there are reasons for that, and some of them are pretty straightforward. Number one, they were likely written on papyrus, and papyrus just doesn't last. It's even you know, more perishable than the paper we have. You know what ancient photos or documents we have from 100 or 200 years look like. They start fading, they start tearing at the edges. Well, all the more so with papyrus. Some of the writing materials simply didn't last. Um, and then documents weren't seen as scripture first and foremost. When Paul started writing these letters to church, to the churches, through you know, the, the, as the gospel spread, these people didn't see them as sacred scripture straight away. What were they? They were letters to be read and used, maybe a copy made, and then it was sent on to the next church, and then it was used there, and you think, you know, the wear and tear on these pieces of papyrus, they weren't thinking, you know, these need to be protected. It's only after a while when they realized, of course, the importance of them, that these things, that they started gathering these copies. And it's, it's hard for us to understand, but writing as a discipline back then was almost non-existent. It was really only the rich who could afford to have copies of texts, who could afford for manuscripts to be made. So oftentimes the copies of the letters that were made by the churches were done by um, maybe if the church had a wealthy member, they could pay for it to be copied by a scribe. Not everybody could write. It was only the actual scribes that, that could do so formally. Or maybe it was an inexperienced scribe that would do it for free or somebody in the church knew a little bit about it. So it was a culture that was not nearly as sort of proficient in writing as we wanted to. And then also, you know, being the first century persecuted church... It's not really ideal circumstances for preserving ancient documents if you're fleeing for your life. You just look at what recently happened in Iraq with some of the ancient artifacts when some of these military groups moved in. Those were some of the first things that were destroyed. Nobody's going to run and save the ancient statue if you're trying to save your children. Right? And so you think of the persecuted church. These letters were often having to be copied in secret and, and sent around. These were not ideal circumstances for, for preserving the originals. Um, for the Old Testament, for example, if you think about it, the Jews, and this is perhaps one of the reasons why God chose them as a nation, they were meticulous in their scribal efforts. They are even to this day in the way that they copy the Pentateuch um, on the scrolls. But they were also persecuted. If you think of how synagogues and temples where these things would have been kept were destroyed and burned to the ground, um, many of them just didn't survive because of what happened to the places where they were kept. So it's unreasonable in a sense to expect that 2,000 years after the event, in the case of the Old Testament, five, 6,000 years after the event, um, you could have the original copies. The forces of nature and just the history mitigates against that. Some people would even go so far to argue that it's God's providence that we don't have the originals. Because you, could you imagine the power struggles, the temptation for change on the originals? 
Could you imagine the temptation for veneration and worship of the originals if we had them? And so some people say it's actually a good thing that we don't have these original autographs written in the original hand because nobody can claim corruption now. Oh, you've changed the original wording of Paul on the original document. No, we don't have those documents. What we do have are copies of those documents made by various different people at various different times all over the world. And so textual criticism says, let's take these many copies that we find from all over and let's compare them and see how they compare. Are they very different? If they are different, what are the types of differences that are in them? And can we somehow from them figure out what the original might have said? That is the science of textual criticism. Okay, let's look at some of the manuscripts that we do have, some of the ancient writings that have been preserved for us. The oldest um, copies of the Old Testament um, are found on silver amulets. Not surprising. Silver, probably a little more sturdy than parchment and papyrus, right? Um, so these were little amulets, sort of like perhaps we wear a T-shirt with a Bible verse, or maybe you, you have a bracelet with something engraved on it. Um, the one that we see up there is from the 7th century BC. That's, what is it, 9,000 years? Um, it contains part of Numbers 6, verse 22 to 27. Um, and it's in a Paleo-Hebrew script. It's even before the Hebrew we know today. It's a more simple version of the, of the Hebrew script. And from what they can compare, it's, it's fairly close to the original um, that we have in, in scriptures today. Of course, one of the most exciting finds was that of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know if you've read much about it. If you know much about it, it's worthwhile investigating. Basically, in 1947, the oldest existing Hebrew manuscript of, of significant portions of the Old Testament um, were found in 1947. Before that, the oldest copies of the Old Testament we had were roughly from the 9th century AD. That's much younger than, than even the New Testament copies were. So that was not very good for textual criticism of the Bible. The Old Testament copies were only 9th century AD. That's just before the Middle Ages. Those were the youngest copies we had, in a sense. But then the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and these copies were dated by the scholars, some of them as early as, what do I have there, 3rd century BC. So now you've made a jump from 9th century AD all the way back to the 3rd century BC, for example, um, the Isaiah scroll, the famous Isaiah scroll would be somewhere in there. And what can you do? You can compare the two. A span of how many hundreds of years in between, you can put them together and you can see, let's, say, let's see how much they've changed. One that is so very old, one that is much younger, we can compare and see how much has the text changed. So the... Um, the Dead Sea Scroll discoveries are really, really, really significant as far as our Old Testament manuscripts are concerned. We'd be very grateful for that little goat herd who went and, and found them in that cave there. It was a pretty important discovery. Um, some others, I'm not going to go through these in a lot of detail. You can find um, interesting information about it. This talks a little bit about, um, some, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, these scribal families. Maybe you've heard of the Masoretic texts or the Masoretes. They were um, families that basically prided themselves in their scribal ability. And when you read up about them, it's fascinating to see the rules for copying that they had. When they copy the Old Testament 
onto the parchment, every letter is counted. Every letter is made a specific size so that they can pick up on error. And when you make the error in certain instances, if the error is that bad, they have to start the whole thing all over again. It's quite fascinating, the rules. So just the meticulousness in which these were um, written down. But what, what is interesting is to look at some of the dates. You'll see that some of them are um, from sort of, you know, 200, 100 BC, and then some of them from, from a little bit later than that. What that means is that you have a lot of manuscript over a large span of time to compare, and that is good for textual criticism. Because if we can show that the manuscript in 900 AD is similar or very close to the one that we found for, from the 3rd century BC, then we can show that the text has been stable in the way that it's been copied and transmitted over the centuries. Okay, um, there are also secondary sources. So um, the Samaritans had a copy of the Pentateuch in their language. You had the Aramaic Pentateuch, so where of the ancient, and then of course the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation uh, of the Hebrew Old Testament. That was likely what Jesus would have read in the synagogue because the language of the day was Greek. Um, it was the, the, the Greek Bible, Greek Old Testament that the disciples would have used. They often use it when they quote Old Testament verses in their writings. And so these are good to compare. Of course, if you have the, the old Hebrew manuscripts and now you have the Septuagint translation, to compare those and to see whether the meaning is the same, whether the terms that are used. So the fact that we have um, some of these, you can see the Codex Sinaiticus. I've seen it. It's in the British Library. A codex, by the way, is just a fancy name for a book. It's when they moved from having the parchment scrolls to putting it in, in a book form. And it's right there. The Codex Sinaiticus from, I think it's dated 450 AD, roughly. Here's this book. And you, can, you, you can't page through it because it's in a glass cage, but they change the page every so often. And there it is. It's a copy of the Septuagint in the Greek from, what is it, 1,500 years ago. There for everybody to see, not hidden in some place, and we just talk about it as if it exists. It's it's there to see. There's a, there's a picture of it actually that I put on there. You see, it's still in fairly good condition. There's there's a very interesting story about how this was discovered as well. Um, if you want to look into the history of the Codex Sinaiticus. Now, what about the New Testament? Um, New Testament. The earliest copies were of course written on papyrus, which was just being normal letter paper like we use today. And there are about 100 known papyrus manuscripts, 100 pieces of papyrus um, in what we call text-critical apparatus. Basically, for the guys who do the textual criticism, they tend to number them. Do you see that P52? So when a text critic says P52, everybody knows that what he's referring to is the John Ryland's papyrus, piece of papyrus. It has um, a copy of, uh, it's, it's a part of John chapter 18, verse 31 to 34, and on the back, verse 37 to 38. It's a very famous one. It's probably the earliest piece of papyrus that we have. Um, so there, there are the papyrus manuscripts. Then there's what we call the uncials, or the majuscules. Um, these are roughly from around the 4th century AD. So these are written in codex form, and they're usually written on parchment, animal skin, vellum. So they're much sturdier. They would have lasted much longer, and by that time you can see that the church was treating them with more reverence, taking care of um, 
of keeping them. The script has changed slightly. So what you see there is what we call amsial or magical. It's similar to our um, capital letters. What's interesting, though, is there are no spaces between the words. And so you would have to know the language quite well to be able to, um, to, to read it uh, fluently. And you can see already how scribal errors could creep in with people perhaps misreading it because there are no spaces between the words the way they read it. So those are the magic skills. Um, let me give you a rough number of how many of them are there. Approximately 274 um, magic schools that we know today. So that's a lot, a lot of copies from that time that we can compare. Okay, so by the 9th century, you had a more sort of cursive style, similar to what we have today. You can see there are capitals and there are smaller letters. There are now spaces between the words. So these we call the minuscules. And of the minuscules, there are... Um, close to 3,000. We have close to 3,000 copies, and this is just in the original languages. All of these will be in the Greek, the New Testament, originally, and they're from different places. Some of them would be from North Africa, some of them would be from the Middle East, even as far as almost into India as the church spread. You can find these copies. Then there are what we call lectionaries. Lectionaries, um, the, the church would use... Um, passages of scripture throughout the year, almost like you have in the Anglican church, you have that little reader that they go through certain passages on certain days of the calendar. The early church had something similar. Those were called the lectionaries. Um, and of course, there are quotations from scripture in there. There are roughly a thousand lectionaries that we have. Um, and they, so we can compare scripture as it's quoted there with the earlier manuscripts that we have to see whether scripture is the same. There's also ancient versions, that's what we call basically translations, as the New Testament was translated into Arabic and Syriac and all sorts of languages. We have those copies. There are a bunch of those. I can't see the number here, but just many, many, many copies in the different languages. And then you have the quotations of the church fathers. So as the early church fathers went around and preached, people would write down their sermons and they would quote from scripture. So in their sermons, we see their quotations from scripture. And in the writings of the early church fathers, do you know it's interesting that all of the New Testament, with the exception of only 11 verses, can be put together from their quotations. If you take the writings of the church fathers, it's all in there. You'll find a quotation of every verse with the exception of 11 verses in their writings. So it's interesting to compare that to our manuscripts as well and to see whether they are the same. So, this is what one scholar says about it. As we have seen, the Greek witnesses to the text of the New Testament number around 5,000, ranging between 2nd and the 18th century. So that's the span. In comparisons... In comparison, manuscripts of the Hebrew Old Testament number half as many, though the text of these manuscripts is more uniform than exhibited by the manuscripts of the New Testament. Moreover, the earliest surviving copies of the New Testament are much closer to the date of the original writing than is the case with almost any other piece of literature. This is fascinating. When you read the New Testament, or when you look at these manuscripts, let's say the John Ryland's Papyrus, P52, they dated that one, to the early 2nd century, so that was just after 100 AD. Well, the Gospel of Mark, people say, is the earliest one, and conservative estimates would say that Mark was written 
roughly 50 AD. So if Jesus died in 30 AD, about 20 years later, Mark penned his gospel in 50 AD, 52 AD. Okay? The earliest copy we have is from around, let's say, 120 AD. Okay? That's only 70 years in between. That's enough time for people from the same generation to still be alive. Okay? From when the original was written to when we have our first copies. Now, what you want to do is a little comparison with other ancient texts. You take something like the writings of some of the Roman historians. Caesar crossing the Rubicon. That's just taken as a historical fact. I, I'm going to give an, an estimate. You'll have to look it up. But it is more than a hundred years between the actual event and when the first writing about it was even written down. Okay. So in comparison to other texts, the Bible is just... Um, you, you, you can't even, you almost can't compare them as far as how close our manuscript evidence is to the original in comparison to other ancient texts. Okay? So it should give us um, great courage. However, there is something that we should note here in this little quote, and this is this. Though the text of these manuscripts is more uniform than exhibited by the manuscripts of the New Testament. What does that mean? It means that there are variants. There are differences. No two manuscripts compare perfectly. Okay? And we have to say to ourselves, is that a problem? Is the fact that there are differences between the manuscripts a problem? Okay, so variants are differences between manuscripts. And this is what we're going to look at. Um, I want to do it by showing you how textual criticism would be done on a specific verse. How would the text critic go about um, a specific verse? So I'm going to use John 1.18. If you look in your Bible, you should have a footnote on that one. Um, in the ESV, it's translated, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Okay. Now, so that's the verse in the English. Here is a comparison of the verse, okay, the middle part of that verse, middle part of it, from 34 different manuscripts. So the text critic took 34 different manuscripts in which this verse was found, okay, and the middle part of it, he wrote all the different forms that he found. So in 34 manuscripts, it was written in this many different ways. Okay? Roughly, it's the part that's, um, it, the Greek here would translate something like, to see at any time only begotten God, the to be in the bosom. So it's that little bit, um, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. That's the part that we have in the Greek here. Okay? So from 34 manuscripts, these are the issues we have. So what you'd say here is there are 18 total differences between them. Okay? They pointed out by the little arrows. Look at them carefully. Okay? Some of the differences are actually the same thing. I have a little pointer. Let me see if I can get it that way. It's not as if there are... 
In a sense, of there are 18 different things that are different. Some of the differences are actually the same. Look at that one and that one. The same difference appearing in two places, not two differences. Okay? But when the text really counts it, they'll say those are two differences. So when somebody like Bart Ehrman says there are many, 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 many differences, there are more than 200,000 differences is what they'll say. Okay? That can be misleading. It doesn't mean that there are 200 ways in which it differs. 200,000. It means that there are 200,000 places in all of these thousands of manuscripts that we've talked about where there are differences. And some of those differences might even be the same. Do you get the import of what I'm saying? Uh, look, for example, at these three here. Okay? Actually, it's four. Four differences counted, but what is the difference? It's the same word in every single case. It differs from these, but just in one way. Four different times in different manuscripts, but it's one difference. You see what I'm saying? Okay. So Bart Ehrman is, I think, using the factors, the, the, the figures to wow us a little bit, um, especially when you think how many manuscripts there are. This is just a comparison of 34 of them. Okay. If I had a comparison of all, let's say there are 2,000 Greek manuscripts that I use, okay, there would be more differences, meaning more places where I find this word instead of that word, but it's still really one thing that's different. Okay? I might have 1,700 having this word, and they would count that as 1,700 variants, but it's really just one thing that's different, one word. Okay? Now let's look at these a little closer. Um, scholars estimate that between five only about 5% of the variants that we have, so Bart Ehrman's big 200,000, only about 5% of them are important in the sense that they change the meaning. They make it difficult for us to find the meaning. Well, what about the others? They are things like, for example, spelling differences. Um, so you have here, in number one and number two, see again the same difference. They spell the word with the letter Omicron, instead of omega. You know omega from alpha and omega. Both of those are O sounds. The one is a short sound and the one is a long sound of the O vowel. Okay. So any Greek person who read this okay, would have known what it meant. Sort of the way you know what it means when somebody just made a spelling mistake and used an A instead of an O. Okay. So that there really is an insignificant variant. It doesn't matter all that much. Even Somebody who doesn't know the language all that well will know the meaning. And it might be that this is from a later manuscript. You know that we change the way we spell words. You Americans spell words differently from the way the British do. You leave out the U in color, or you'd say they put the U in color. <laughs> and it's the, the, perhaps the same sort of thing that happened between these manuscripts here. So there are spelling errors. Um, there are... Differences in word order, that's what happened here. They just 
change these two words around. Now, in English, that might be significant. If I say, Sam hit the puppy, the puppy hit Sam, those mean two different things, okay? But in Greek, whether something is the subject or the predicate, it's not indicated by where the word is in the sentence. They can mix the word or they're around. It's to do with the form of the word. You look at the word ending to find out whether it's the subject or the predicate. So where I put it doesn't matter. In fact, authors would move words to the front of sentences to show that they're more important than other words in the Greek. Okay, so switching the word around in Greek is really, it doesn't change the meaning of it at all. So that, those two differences, 18, um, 18, and where's the other one when they switched? Oh, it's just the only one, they're 18. That's an insignificant difference. No Greek would think that makes the meaning hard. Okay? Then there's also um, grammatical differences. For example, these ones here, five, six, four. Can you see that little O is missing? That's the article. That's the. Okay? Now, does it matter? Well, monogamous, this word here, is only begotten. Only begotten implies that there's only one. It implies really a the, the only begotten. There's not a only begotten. There is only the only begotten. Okay? And so the fact that there is no definite article here, it's simply irrelevant because it's implied by the word already. Okay? So that doesn't change the meaning. The meaning stays the same. There can only be one only begotten. Um, this one here, number three, that is an insertion sort of the way um, we sometimes say phrases to prove things. Um, it's making the point that it's the one and the only, only begotten. So where these guys left out the, this guy wanted to make doubly sure that we understand that this is the one. Okay, so he inserted that. Again, it changes nothing about the meaning. All right. Okay, so which ones are significant in this passage? Why do we have, you know, the variant? Where, where does it become important? Well, people would say right here, 15, 14, 13, and 12. That's the difference that I want to focus on here. Um, this one here, for example, that's just a different preposition. This is the preposition into, that's the preposition in. Into the bosom, in the bosom. Okay, again, rather insignificant. All right. These are important. Why? Well, because this translation reads the only begotten God, Theos. This translation reads the only begotten Son. Alright? So now somebody who's a critic of Christianity is going to say, hmm, look at what these Christians have done. They wanted Jesus to be God. And so the earliest virgins, versions have only begotten Son. But because they wanted to you know, believe that Jesus was God, they changed it to only God and God. And so here we have the beginning of them messing, messing with the text. And so the question for, for the textual critic is, which one is it? Is it only begotten God or is it only begotten Son? How do they decide? Well, now they go through a whole process. Um, The first thing they do, the first thing you have to do is to identify the variants. Okay, so where did I go for that? I went to my Greek New Testament, and if you open it up, the page, you'll have the script here, and at the bottom of the page there's this stuff. Okay? 
and you look at that and you think, what the heck? <laughs> I'm already struggling to read the Greek. What is this supposed to mean? And originally when I started, I just ignored it. I didn't even you know, think it was important. But here's how cool it is. This is, they've given you the five most important variants of this verse. Okay? There's one, two, three, four, five. Okay? It's shown in the Greek and that is followed by all of the manuscripts, all of the important manuscripts that you find that variant in. So I know that Papyrus 66, the Alpha Ancial, the Beta Ancial, the C Ancial, all of these church fathers, all of these lexicons have that variant in them. This is how it's written in them. Monogenesius, only begotten God. Okay? There are these many, all of these virgins have, versions have the only begotten God. Okay? Now here's where it becomes important. The only begotten Son is in all of these manuscripts. Each one of those numbers represents one of those documents that I showed you, either a papyrus or a handwritten one. And so these are actually quite cool. You can see the ancient documents that have each one of these versions. That's what they what they are what are telling you in there. Okay? So what does the text critic do next? Well, now you take these different manuscripts that you find them in and you basically draw up um, a different... You look at the external, what we call the external considerations first. You draw up a table like this and you say, okay, variant one. So that's the one that says only begotten God, right? Which manuscripts support them? Well... It's these ones here, Alexandrian mean it's it, meaning it's roughly from sort of North African area. These usually are the older manuscripts. Most of the papyruses are Alexandrian. And what you have is you have what they call geological solidarity. Most of the manuscripts from this area say the same thing. They like that. Okay. And here are some of the other here are some of the versions that also say it. So that's variant one. Variant 2 looks like this. Okay, that's the one that says only begotten son. Most of the Byzantine manuscripts, now these are usually a little bit older, okay, they have this reading in them, but there are some of the Alexandrian ones that also have this reading. Okay, so this one doesn't have the um, ge geographical solidarity. Okay, there are a few here and a few there. But it has a wider spread. Okay, so now the text critic says, okay, what does that mean? In one area, this variant was accepted. In other areas, not. So what do you want? Well, if you want to be real sure what the original was, you want it to be in all of the manuscripts from all of the places. That would have been the best thing. If there are only a few odd manuscripts that have the other reading, okay, then we're going to say, wait a minute. Most of them, from most of the places, have this one. And so, speaking externally, speaking from where these manuscripts came, okay, it's more likely that it's the one with most evidence. Okay. So, with this one, text critics would say, uh, the external evidence is not conclusive. If I, if I go back to this one here, they say, you know, there's about as much support for this one as there is for that one. And the... the this, it's sort of geographically separated. There isn't much integration between the regions, so we can't tell much from, you know, 
where, where, where they came from, from the external considerations. So what do we do then? Well, then we say, now we pretend we're a scribe. And we say, how can we explain, possibly, that there are these differences? So now we think of things like style and vocabulary of the author. What was John more likely to write? If we look at the rest of his gospel, if we look at his epistles, which kind of words did John normally use? Okay. Authors tend to use the same expressions. You read Paul and you find some of the same expressions in his letters. It's just the way we express ourselves. It's similar. And then we also look at how did the scribes used to do this? What did they do that could possibly bring about a change? Okay. Here are the principles. Textual critics say, number one, you prefer the shorter reading. Why? Because scribes tended to add things in. Okay, so here I'm a scribe, I'm translating this verse, and I think, man, this is important. I, I want to drive this point home, so what do I add on? Like that one who had that, those two little words to make the point, the, the, only begotten. It's more likely that they would have put something in than left something out. So the general principle is, you prefer the shorter reading. Now this is where it becomes an art. That's the science. The art is, well, sometimes they might have just left something off by accident. So you've got to keep that at the back of your mind as well. Or, um, the second one, prefer the more difficult reading. If you were a scribe, you were writing down the Bible, and here's something that just doesn't make sense, what would the temptation be? To change it and to make it more understandable for the people who read it. Okay? The textual critic says, what's more difficult is more likely to be the original, because it wasn't corrected. Okay? What's more difficult? Again, here's the art. could be more difficult simply because it was copied wrong and now it doesn't make sense either. So you've got to weigh both options. The next one. Prefer the reading that accords best with the author's style and vocabulary. That's an important one. Um, if John writes things in a similar way in other places, it's likely that he'll do it here. So you have to take the whole context of his writing um, into consideration. So, what sort of changes would a scribe make? Well, he could make intentional changes. Okay, Maybe in the copy he was copying of, he saw a grammatical error. They say, for example, Peter was not the best Greek writer. Okay, So in his epistles, they're hard to translate from the Greek because he was clearly a second-hand, oh, second-hand, second-language user of, of, of the language. And so maybe a scribe who knew the Greek well would have had the temptation to change something in Peter to make it more grammatically correct. So maybe the scribe in our example felt that that extra the was superfluous, wasn't good Greek, and left it out okay, to make a grammatical correction. Or a spelling correction, like we saw the spelling of the Omicron and the Omega. Maybe the spelling of the word had changed over time. Or sometimes historical corrections. People will say, oh, there was no such place in the Old Testament time of Abraham than what is mentioned here. But if you look into the history, the ancient name was changed to another name and the scribe does the same. So that the people of the day would know where it is now, he uses the modern day name, but the ancient name was the one used before. So a scribe might make an historical correction. Okay? So, could, oh, there's, there's my, my example there, my number one is um, the scribe changing it to the grammatically superior by leaving the the out, because only begotten already implies the the. Um, 
sometimes they simply made error of sight. Oh, unfortunately, my little, because this is not my computer, the script hasn't come out there. But if you look at, do you remember I said the uncials, they wrote the words without spaces? Okay. So we scribed the word, the way that theos was written and the word dokhuios, God and Son, was written. They look very similar in that unsealed manuscript. Okay. So we scribed, have you ever made the error where you read the word and you're sure the word you read was, well, I don't know, cat. And really the word is mat. Okay, and so your eyes sort of read a word in there because they look so similar. Um, so some people would make the argument, maybe the scribe here saw the word theos and wrote huios. They look very similar. Okay, that might be where the, that was an error of sight or error of hearing. Sometimes the way these things were copied is the scribes would sit in a big old hall and there would be somebody in the front reading the, the, the original and they would just be copying from what he's saying. Now, you know from dictation, especially if you can't quite hear the accent or if there's a noise, you can sometimes get things wrong. So listen to the two words. Uh, my Greek pronunciation is not the best, but even so, theos, huios. That ending is very similar. You can see how in a big first century hall without a microphone of some sort, there could have been an error of hearing, for example. Or sometimes error of memory. So if you used to write something in one way, you sometimes write it in that way, even though the thing you're copying says something different, because you're just used to doing it. So you see only begotten, and if you've written only begotten son before, you might not even look to see what it says next. You just, oh, only begotten, only begotten son. Okay? Whereas the word in the original might have been God. So that might have been errors of memory. Now, as you can see, all of these are unintentional errors. These would be things that the scribes do simply because they're human. All right? Now... What about our version back here? Our, sorry, I have this on the other PowerPoint and then they switched computers on me and so I have to go back a little bit. Okay, what do we make of this one? It's interesting when you go into, um, the, for example, this USB. It's compiled by several different text critics. And what they give you at each variant is they'll put a little A, B, C, or D at the front of it. Where's my picture here where we have the... There we go. Do you see there's a little B in brackets there? Okay. This is a scale. If they put an A, it means they're absolutely certain that this was the original reading. Okay. If they put an D, this is they're very unsure. Okay. And what's interesting when you read the commentary on this, they put a B over here. But two or three of the scholars with them actually disagreed. So they added an extra footnote that says, no, this is, this is a D. They go for only begotten God in this, in this USB version, uh, UBS version of the Greek New Testament. Um, and it's because of the manuscript evidence. They like this old papyrus. They say, this is the oldest version we have, and it. it's likely to be the right one. That's the philosophy behind it, more or less. It's a little more complicated than that one. Okay. Whereas the guys who disagree, they say, they argue from the internal critics. They say, if you read John's letters, every single time he uses the phrase only begotten, he uses the phrase only in the sense of only begotten son. It's never only begotten God. And so they say it's very unlikely that John would have changed it 
to only begotten God. He didn't need to either. Okay, somebody like Bart Ehrman would say, well, which one is it now? Is he God or is he just the son of God, meaning he's just a human being like the rest of us? Okay, well, are we dependent on John 1, chapter 18 for the complete doctrine of Jesus' deity? No. Go and read the rest of chapter 1. Go and read the first few verses of that chapter. You don't need verse 1, chapter 18 saying, son of the only begotten God, or the only begotten God, in order to prove Jesus' deity. Everything that comes before is talking about that already. So when you read it in context, okay, it really becomes not immaterial because there is a change, but it doesn't change the core doctrine. It doesn't change ultimately what scripture teaches about Jesus and who he was. Okay? And so these guys make a footnote. So they, the, the scholars actually end up disagreeing about this one. Now what should we do? Should we feel discomfort? Should we say, this is scary? I think the very fact that there are hundreds of people who spend their lives poring over dusty pieces of papyrus, gluing them back together, and then publishing these findings, okay, learning these ancient languages, reading them, publishing these types of findings for everybody to see is really, really encouraging. It's all out there in the open. Every single one of these manuscripts can be seen. Every single little change is being investigated, is being accounted for, goes through this process of why could it possibly be? Which one are we most responsible um, in believing? Okay? Every single one of those footnotes should remind you of this. These people who spend their lives working on these documents, making sure that scripture as we have it in front of us today is really as close as possible to the original text. Yes, there are many, many, many thousands of variants, but 95% of them are immaterial, like you've seen in those examples we've shown. Nobody would take them seriously for claims that the text has been changed. The ones that are important, not a single doctrine of the faith hinges upon those verses. Everywhere where there's a change where somebody could say, could say hmm, this is a problem for your doctrine of the Trinity, or this is a problem for Christ's deity, every single one of those you can find many other supporting verses for which there are no variants in all of the many manuscripts we have to support the doctrine. Okay, So how does scripture fare? It fares very, very well as far as ancient textual criticism is concerned. And you know what? I was a little bit sneaky when I started this presentation. I do my, um, my quotation of Bart Ehrman to get you all riled up to think about. But even Bart Ehrman admits this. Listen to what he says. He says, To be sure, of all the hundreds of thousands of textual changes found among our manuscripts, most of them are completely insignificant, immaterial of no real importance, or anything other than showing that scribes could not spell or keep fo focused any better than the rest of us. It would be wrong, however, to say, as people sometimes do, that changes in our text have no real bearing on what the texts mean or on the theological conclusions that one draws. And this is where he differs from us. He wants to make much of some of these differences. We have seen, in fact, that just the opposite is the case. Bart Ehrman, I think, holds some presuppositions about the existence of God and the way that um, systems of faith develop. 
um, which I think for him mitigates against the meaning. So which ones does he pull up? He'll say, for example, well, was Jesus an angry man or not? Mark chapter 1, verse 41. Was he completely distraught in the face of death? That's Luke chapter 2, we want, the one we read. Did he sweat blood or not? That's basically what he's saying. Did he tell his disciples that they could drink poison without being harmed? Maybe you know, but the last part of Mark is a much disputed passage. You'll definitely have a footnote there, should it even be in there. Most scholars would argue that it wasn't part of the original. Um, did he let an adulteress off the hook with nothing but a mild warning? There's big debate about John chapter 8. The earliest manuscripts don't have that portion in there. Is the doctrine of the Trinity explicitly taught in the New Testament? 1 John 5, 7. This one with the Muslim is hard work because the King James Version changes the original there to talk about the Trinity in a way that I don't think the earliest manuscripts did, for example. Is Jesus actually called the unique God? That's the one that we were talking about. Does the New, in New Testament even indicate that the, Son in, that the Son of God himself does not know when the end will come? And the questions go on and on. This is what he says. Well, just look at those for a second. Take the passage that we read in Luke. Do we need Luke to know that Jesus was distraught in the face of death? No. Because we have Matthew telling us the same thing. Do we... Do we need the end of Mark to be word for word what it was? Well, those were Jesus' instructions to his disciples who would now become apostles, spreading the word. None of us need to drink poison, is what that implies. And also I think we have some examples, Paul bitten by the snake, of exactly this happening. Okay, so no, we don't need that either. Do we need... 1 John 5, 7 for the doctrine of the Trinity. Even if the King James Version was wrong in changing that text and the original didn't say that, we find the Trinity elsewhere. We find it in the Great Commission. Matthew, what does it say? Go baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You find the, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity throughout Scripture, I'd argue even in the Old Testament. Okay? The one we talked about today. Does it have to say only begotten God in order for us to believe that Jesus was divine? No, because what word one says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Okay. Um, and so all of these, when you look at them very carefully, I think he's making more of it than necessarily needs to be the case. And that's partly because of his presuppositions. So, last few things, a couple of recommendations for reading if you want to look into it some more. Um, can you trust the Bible text in light of its manuscript evidence and the result of the vigorous textual criticism? I would say yes. Uh, Takeaway, pray for and support text critical work. This is very important work, especially as uh, more and more manuscripts are being uncovered. Do you know that they are still finding ancient manuscripts? of the Bible. In fact, there's some very exciting developments where, listen to this whole story, they found in Egypt ancient artifacts that were wrapped. It's almost like we do gift wrapping, and when they took the wrapping off, the wrapping was biblical manuscripts. So they're, they're spending, people like the owners of Hobby Lobby, spending thousands of dollars buying the artifact, but they're actually interested in the wrapping paper. 
So that's some of the stuff that's developing. And now they're having to do all of this text critical work on it. They have to date them. That's more of that's not text critical work. That's to do with paleography. When is the script? How old is the page? That sort of thing. So prayer for these people. You can visit the Green Scholar Initiative if you want to see some of that. They're actually training up young folks to take this on. Um, read more than one translation of the Bible so that you become aware of these text critical issues and so that you can do your best at explaining them. Um, use verses with significant variants wisely. I wouldn't use a King James Version uh, with 1 John 5, 7 when I evangelize a Muslim because it's an unnecessary hurdle. I know there's a good explanation for it, but it's an unnecessary hurdle to jump with them, so I'd rather use a different translation. Thank God for his word and the preservation thereof. A um, couple of books. Thin little one, the one that made me think I have to write this talk, David Allen Black, um, concise guy, I don't think it's even 60 pages long. Just gives you a brief introduction, and at the end, end of his, he says, now that you read this book, tell other Christians about how it works, why they can trust the Bible. Something that's a little more meaty, but great, you know, all those manuscripts I told you about. He goes into so much detail on each one of them, tells you where you can see them, um, tells you a bit of the history behind them. It's called Textual Criticism of the Bible by Paul D. Wagner. And then there's one actually by Bruce M. Metzger, Metzger, if you know, is a very um, conservative New Testament scholar. And Bob Ehrman, the critic that I just mentioned, they actually wrote a book together on the text of the New Testament, its transmission, corruption, and restoration, meaning they look at the process of the manuscript. That's a little more formal. That's a bit of a more, more of a scholarly one, but it's a very good one if you want to delve into it some more. Okay. I think we're out of time. I hope that wasn't too confusing or irrelevant. <laughs> I hope that it meant something for you. If you have any questions, we'll be around, and uh, please feel free to ask us at any point. Okay. That's true, yes. And so I, um, that was part of, I think once I discovered the process and I stu understood it, it was almost like I could sort of relax about it and say, okay, well, let me now focus on what it says. I don't have to worry where it comes from. This has been done well. And so I'm very grateful for those men who are willing to spend their lives doing doing this for us. Yeah. And so now it's up to me to to honor the word and, and what it says. Oh yeah. Oh it's 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 laughable when, when you do compare it. And so you see, you know, you see, you see two things. I would say, since I believe in God, I see God's providence in it. Because, of course, the more manuscripts you have, the more sure you can be about what comes later. But I also see, um, I also see the way in which the church and Christians cherish these things. You know, they were, it, it's sort of the way we feel about this is why people, people serve as Gideons. We need to get the word out there. They had the same sentiment. That's why they took the time of meticulously writing it. You know, if I have to copy one gospel by hand, I would think, oh, what a laborious task. You know, these scribes would spend all day doing it so that the word could get out there. And I think that's real testimony to the importance of the Bible for the early church as well. Yeah.